open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray now that You would come once again by Your Spirit and minister to us through the preaching of Your Word. Lord, lead us as we seek to open Your Word, as we seek to understand Your Word, and as we seek to apply that Word to our lives. Teach us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we noted last week, as we familiarized ourselves with this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Thessalonica, this letter was written only a few months after Paul's sudden departure from this city. This letter is, is not like other letters, like Ephesians or Colossians, where Paul is writing perhaps even ten years after he has ministered in this city. This is a letter that has been written in response to, to really a rather urgent desire on the part of the apostle to know how this church was doing. You remember, we saw that the circumstances in which this church came into being were far from ideal. Paul had only been able to minister within Thessalonica for, for really only a period of, of three weeks. It's, it's possible that he was there for, for a number of months, but in all likelihood, according to Acts 17, he was only there for, for just over three, possibly four weeks until he was run out of town by an angry mob that was threatening to turn the whole city on its head and, and have Paul prosecuted as a traitor against Caesar. And as Paul considered, now sitting in Corinth, as he considered how the church in Thessalonica was doing, he was understandably concerned about this church that he had left in the city, a young church and in many ways a feeble church. Their future on the face of things did not look good. They had been deprived of the opportunity to be discipled personally by Paul and his associates. They had been deprived of 
of those months, years that Paul liked to give often to these churches, spending two years in, in Ephesus, a year and a half in Corinth, but he hadn't been able to do any of that with this church. He had been unable, apparently, even to place one of his fellow missionaries in the church as he left to do that initial follow-up work after his own departure. It didn't look good for this young church. Their future wasn't bright. It wasn't rosy. To all intents and purposes, as we leave Acts 17, we may well wonder if this church is going to make it. And we can imagine Paul is wondering the same thing. Sitting in Corinth, considering this church that he has had to leave so quickly, he could only stand it really for, for a few weeks before he sends Timothy back to find out just how they are. Are they still there? Is there even a church in Thessalonica? No sooner were they born into this world that their father in the faith was taken from them and concerned about his spiritual children. He sends Timothy to find out how they are doing. And as we read here, what Timothy had found and what he had subsequently reported to Paul was, in light of Acts 17, absolutely extraordinary. Instead of merely surviving, this young church was apparently thriving to the point where their commitment to the gospel had become notorious in just a matter of months throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia, what we would know as Greece. Right? To the point that, that Paul could say in verse 8 that he didn't need to say anything. Right? That is to say that their witness had become so powerful and effective that as Paul now considered his strategy for spreading the gospel throughout the known world, he could effectively consider Macedonia and Achaia as effectively in the process of being reached. He didn't need to plan journeys over there. He didn't need to send missionaries over there because the Christians in Thessalonica in just a few months had established such a strong and powerful witness that it was effectively being evangelized. This church, that at the end of Acts 17, looks as if it is going to weather under the scorching heat of opposition and persecution, was, Timothy found, flourishing. And they were proclaiming the gospel. And not only that, they were giving evidence to the power of the gospel by, by living lives that had been evidently transformed by that gospel to the point that that their witness, their testimony, their lives, it was all coming together to, to ring out across the entire region. As John Stott put it, the gospel proclaimed by the Thessalonians made a loud noise which seemed to reverberate throughout the hills and the valleys of Greece. It was extraordinary that this young church, deprived of their spiritual father, just perhaps three weeks after they had been born into the world, 
to think that they, just now only a few months on, had, had so flourished that they had become notorious throughout the entire region for their commitment to Christ. And we may well ask, well, what has happened? What has happened to bring them to this point? How was it that this church full of new and inexperienced converts had been able to do so well that they weren't just maintaining, but that they were actively advancing even in the face of such severe opposition? What was going on? We may well ask, how were they able to do this? Well, as Paul opens this letter by giving thanks for the Thessalonian church here, he walks us through what had happened among them to produce such endurance. And I think we can imagine Paul writing this at least in part to help him get his own mind around it. I don't know if you're like me, but there's times really with my sermons where I just have to start writing in order to figure out what I'm thinking. And I imagine that 1 Thessalonians 1 is something like that for the apostle. He, I imagine him sitting down just in absolute wonder at what Timothy has just told him about this church. And so he starts writing to try and figure out what has gone on. His prayer here is a rehearsal of just what has happened as a result of his own ministry. And the conclusion that he comes to is that all of this, is the result of the working of God amongst this congregation. Now, of course, on one level, that's obvious. Like Karl Barth once joked, Jesus is the answer, now what's the question? And, and we could say the same thing here, right? We know enough of our theology to know that at the root, God is the reason for this church being established, even in the midst of such hostility from especially the Jewish community, but also the Gentile community. And we know that God is, is the reason for any church to be established in any situation, in any circumstances, but the dramatic way in which this Thessalonian church was born, I think, removes all temptations for us to give some credit to the skills of its leadership. Right? And that's always the temptation, even, even when we have the best of theology, even when we read the New Testament. And we look at Paul going to these cities, and we see his strategy, and we see his effectiveness. There's a temptation for us to give credit to Paul for what has happened. It's smart on one level that Paul first finds the Jewish community, whether they're found in a synagogue or whether they're found in other places, because they're the people that he wants to tell First, that their Old Testaments have found fulfillment in Christ. That's smart. That's strategic. We read of Paul sending out missionaries from his centers into the other areas, and, and that's smart, and it's strategic, and there's things that we can learn. But I think it's easy for us to cross over and begin to think of Paul as the driver of this mission. We tend to do it here. In our own society, we look at the great church leaders and we want to know what their secret is. We want to know what is it that they have done. We want to read their book because we want to find out just what their strategy has been and how they have come to build this church. But, but here in Thessalonica, everything's stripped away. 
everything, humanly speaking, in just a a few short weeks after these Thessalonians had been converted out of their Judaism and out of their paganism, everything, every, every human support's taken away. This young church had no mission statement and supporting priorities. It had no church programs. As far as we were aware, it didn't really even have a, a functioning eldership. Now, these are all good things, right, that we want and things that we normally need in order to grow our faith and stabilize our churches, but they just weren't there in Thessalonica. But in their absence, the glory of God in the establishment of His church was laid bare. In the absence of all these good things that we should give thanks for and pursue, in the absence of them all in Thessalonica, we have a situation in which the working of God in the establishment and the endurance of His church is put on full display. Now, I don't know if this is a good example. I was trying to think how to, to illustrate this, and I don't know if it's a good example, so if it's not, forgive me, but there's a German artist, I think he was a, a doctor as well, a man called Gunther von Hagens, and he uses a technique called plastination in which he preserves the bodies of humans and animals and other anatomical structures. He essentially injects a plastic substance. And the technique means that he's able to display these bodies in everyday poses, but with this skin removed, so that we can see the inner workings of these bodies, these structures. It's fascinating. He poses these humans, he poses horses, other animals in, in situations, a horse mid-gallop, and you can see without the skin there the, how the muscles are working together to power this horse on. He'll put humans in sporting positions so that we can see the same thing. He strips away that good and necessary layer of skin to expose the inner workings. And, and I think, in a sense, that's what the Thessalonian church was. A healthy and thriving body which had had all those, those good externals removed so that the inner workings of God in the life of His people was exposed and laid bare. And you notice how Paul describes it here. He grounds the whole thing in predestination. Why did these Christians prosper? Ultimately, verse 4, because God had chosen them for His own. And that alone by itself meant that there was nothing that could effectively destroy them. Now, do you remember how Jesus uh, describes Christians in John 10? He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That, that's predestination. That's Calvinism. Jesus says, every one of my sheep has been given to me by the Father. They have been named, and they have been selected by my Father, and they have given being given to me. But, but notice how he goes on, and he says, understand this, it means that my Father knows each and every one of them, and He holds them in His grip, and no one can take them out of that grip. 
No, no, no power of hell. No scheme of man. No one. And that's what Paul's saying here. Verse 4, you want to know why this church was established? You want to know why they thrived and didn't just survive? It's because they were held in the grip of God's grace. God had chosen them for His own. He had selected them for His own. It didn't lie in any earthly circumstances. It lay in their heavenly circumstances. Now, this doctrine of election, of course, is one that is tricky. And it's one that I think even we committed Calvinists have to admit can, can lead to pride and and selfishness, but understand it's always presented in Scripture as being the grounds of the Christian's strong assurance. It says, Christian, you did nothing to win your salvation, and there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. If you are God's now, then you are God's forever. How will you weather the storms of life only because you're anchored to the rock who cannot move? If it was dependent upon your grip to hold on to that rock, then you would slip away a thousand times a day. You would get torn away as the storms of life buffeted you and tossed you here and there. But here we see this fundamental truth that we are held in the grip of God, we are anchored to the rock that cannot move. And so, even if Paul is there with you for a year and a half, or if he is with you for three weeks, if you are born into culturally acceptable and comfortable circumstances, or if you are thrown into the crucible of persecution, there is nothing that can snatch you from the hands of God. Your security is sure and definite. That's what Paul's describing here. At the root of this church's well-being was their election. It was that election that was the anchor of their Christian identities. That's why Paul says in verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How do we know then that we are amongst the elect? It is because the gospel bears fruit in our lives. How do we know that we are among the elect? It is that God has… how do we know that God has predestined us for salvation and He has chosen us? It is because we believe the gospel. And not just an intellectual assent, but we believe the gospel with a powerful conviction, a conviction of our sin and a conviction that Christ is our Savior, or as Charles Spurgeon put it, a conviction that I have a great need for Christ, but I also have a great Christ for my need. That's what undergirded this young church, that in the grace of God, they had responded to the call of God through the preaching of Paul and his companions, and they had responded in such a way that their lives had been transformed. Verse 9, The report that was going out about them was that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and were waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
You understand that's just an extended way of saying what Paul had said in verse 3 when he referred to their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. It's the same thing that brackets this opening section. Like we said in Sunday school this morning, whenever you find these parentheses in Scripture, and you'll find them a lot, they're always there to make uh, uh, an emphatic statement. And this whole section is bracketed by essentially the same thing, just put in two different ways, that by the gracious election of God, they had believed the gospel. They had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. They were now laboring in love for God and for the brethren, and they lived under the hope of Christ's return, knowing that one day He will return and bring us safely home. And that is really what undergirded and secured this young church as all of the human supports and structures were taken away, the inner workings were exposed, and it was made clear that it was God who had brought this church into being, and it was God who was sustaining them in the midst of their trials. And you understand this is important for us here in our church to remember, especially as we go through this season of renewed focus on our mission and our distinctives and our priorities. As we go through this process that we began a few weeks ago and we're continuing through just now, as we begin to think how our mission statement and our priorities and our distinctives shape and inform our ministry, this is important for us to remember. Right? These things are good. And these things are important. But if they weren't, we wouldn't be spending so much time and energy on them. They will help focus our priorities. They'll, they'll help give us, uh, they'll help bring us back again and again to the gospel. They will help shape our community and enliven our worship and drive our witness. They're good and they're important, but as good as, and important as they are, this passage gives us an important reminder that all of this is doomed to failure unless God is in it. You cannot program this fundamental stability. Right? That is where so much of the American church has gotten itself into trouble. They have tried to turn the growth and the stability of the church into a program that can be neatly packaged and sold and implemented. But we can't do that. We have to be responsible and diligent we have to take care and do all that we can to make sure that we are being good stewards of all that we have and, and all that we are. We're not to be careless in our ministry, but, but we have to understand that it is the work of God and the work of God alone that establishes churches and maintains churches and advances churches. The growth and stability of the church is the work of God in eternity past manifesting itself in the response to the gospel in the here and now. And that is why absolutely central in our priorities is the Word of God. Because it is in the Word of God that we encounter the work of, the work of God to draw His people to Himself. Right, do you remember how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it in question 89? It asks, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? And the answer is, the Spirit of God 
makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It was the Word of God preached that had brought the Thessalonians to faith. And it was that same Word that was sustaining them in Paul's absence. Or to use the language of the Shorter Catechism, it was the Word of God preached that had convinced and converted these sinners, and it was the Word of God preached that was building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Right? That's what Paul means in verse 5 when he says that the Word came in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It was that conviction of faith that enabled them to stand strong, receiving the Word, as he says in verse 6, in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit to the point that they became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It was the conviction of faith that drove them to their lives of love, of faith and love and hope that Paul mentions in verse 3. That little formula that Calvin once described as a brief definition of true Christianity. That's what Paul is so thankful for that there was evidence of just how deeply this gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit had taken root in their lives. As Paul begins his letter to these Christians who are feeling the effects of living in the last days, who are experiencing the tribulation of living in a culture, a city that was actively against them, as Paul begins this letter that is designed to reinforce their faith as well as answer their questions and meet their doubts. He begins by reminding them just how powerfully God has worked within them. I think, as I said, that part of the reason that Paul opens like this is because of his own wonder at how God had, against all the odds, established and maintained and even advanced this church. Right, what we have is part of Paul's own wonder-filled, worshipful overflow as he considers the power of God and the reality that the gates of hell will never prevail against the kingdom of Christ. But Paul also writes this in order to assure his readers that he sees tangible evidence of the reality of God's work in their lives as they face this affliction as they face this hardship that had come upon them, this tribulation, Paul writes to them to remind them of the evidence of God's blessing of their lives. There was a great temptation for them. As there always is when we go through hardship to grow weary in well-doing, to start well but then to burn out. But here Paul, as he opens this letter with this thanksgiving, comes to them to take their eyes off of themselves and to fix their eyes again on God, reminding them that their fundamental identity was wrapped up in their union with God through their salvation. And it is the same for us. G.K. Beale wrote, although there are certain differences in culture, language, and time, we do not live in an age radically different theologically from the Thessalonians. We also live in the end times and thus need to have faith, love, and hope in order to persevere through a tribulation that subtly attempts to destroy us 
spiritually. And so what will keep us secure? It is remembering that our identities are in Christ. It is remembering the work of God in our lives. It is remembering the future hope of Christ's return that lies before us. That's what sets the proper context for how we live. That's what sets the proper parameters for how we engage the cultures that are around us. When we remember these things, we remember that our home is not here, that we are citizens of a new and better kingdom, that we are strangers and aliens on this earth, and so we are able to press on in the joy of the Holy Spirit. How Paul opens this letter is really quite incredible. This is a very young church who have and who are experiencing some pretty serious opposition because of their commitment to Christ. But how Paul characterizes them here is remarkably solid and stable. And Paul makes clear that this stability was rooted in God's grace towards them. This was God's church held in God's hand, and therefore those gates of hell could never prevail against it. May we be driven by what Paul says here to pray for ourselves and for our church, that we too would be gripped by the gospel in this same way, that our faith would become notorious throughout our region, and the gospel advance because of our faith and our love and our hope. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for this opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. It is a chapter that inspires us and encourages us, but it's also a chapter that convicts us. Lord, help us to be men and women who have been so transformed by the gospel that our commitment to Christ would become notorious throughout our region. Lord, we pray for Your work amongst us through Your Word, by Your Holy Spirit, to strengthen our faith, to sanctify us and purify us, that we might live lives that are faithful and sure and steadfast. As the culture is quickly turning against us, Lord, help us not to be afraid, help us not to be worn down, but help us, like these Thessalonians, to stand firm knowing that we are held in your grip and therefore we are in the most secure position in the whole world. Lord, help us, drive us on, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.